So continue to pray today for Caden. Continue to pray for the Millers. Continue to pray for all those who are at war, that the peace of God would come. Amen. And this morning we continue in a series we began a few weeks ago from Luke's gospel, Luke's historical record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 15 is where we were. It's where we'll be again today. And I won't review too much for the sake of time, but we began looking at a story that Jesus shared with a gathering of messy sinners and self-righteous religious leaders. And we saw the last time that we were together, the first portion of this story. One about a rebellious son who came to his father and said, you aren't dying fast enough. So why won't you just go ahead and give me what's coming to me? Give me my inheritance. He goes, he takes that inheritance and he squanders it on reckless living. You remember that's what the word prodigal means is reckless. And so he squanders it all, finds himself working in a pigsty, and it's there in that pigsty, it is there in that moment that this young man has an aha experience. We saw from Kyle Eidelman, a sudden awakening followed by brutal honesty and ultimately action. That action being a repentant heart that says, I'm going home. Because it's better for me to be there as a servant than to be where I am right now. Which leads us to today as we get to really witness the heart of the Father. Picking up in Luke chapter 15 and verse 18. We're going to read a little bit of the end of the vignette. The portion of the story we saw last time to move into the next. It says this. The young man said, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now take note of this, what's happening here. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Just kind of circle that, highlight that, make sure you don't miss it. Treat me as one of your servants. So what he's doing here is he's doing that prep for this moment he's going to come, Noah's going to come. It's the same as you when you have that morning shower and you're thinking about the difficult conversation you've got to have later today. An apology you have to make. A confrontation that needs to take place, right? You rehearse what you're going to say. None of y'all do that, just me? All right. You work through it. You have the conversation so you kind of know what it is. That's what's happening here. He says, I've got this set. I need him to know I sinned against heaven and before him. I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose. He did just that. He came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So today, 
where last time we saw uh, the picture of the prodigal. Today we get to see the heart of the father. The picture of the heart of the father where previously we just saw the father introduced and then followed that storyline of the son. Today we see the return and we get to actually witness this morning the father's heart demonstrated. We get to see what it looks like. We get to see the response that comes from the father in the midst of all of this. And there's two ways in which we see the father's heart really poured out here in this interaction. And the first is this. We see the father's heart demonstrated in attentiveness. Attentiveness. Now, if you'll take note here, Jesus is telling this story. And it's recorded for us this way. And he, meaning the young man, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Now, before we dive in, we need to do a little refresher on how the son ended up home, right? You remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This wasn't some existential realization that this young man had. He wasn't just sitting in a pigsty and said, oh, I see it now. I see my brokenness. It is all laid before me. Look at how messed up I am and let me pull myself up by my bootstraps and everything will be good again, right? That's what we tend to do in our lives. We tend to, even those of us who are Christ followers, think that somehow we've got to pull ourselves up, that, that we've got to figure it out right? That's not what happened here. What drew the son back home? It was thinking upon the character of the father. What caused him to leave the pigsty and go home was that he started thinking about the father. He wasn't thinking about his state or what he had done or how messed up he was. He started thinking about the father. So in a very real sense, catch this, The father was always with him. At the very least, the understanding of who the father was, was always with him in both his heart and in his mind. So he returns and then we really see it played out because catch this, let's not miss it. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still, say this with some fervor, you all have already been my favorite service of all day. Don't tell them. They don't need to know. You've already been my favorite. But let's keep that enthusiasm going today. But while he was still what? Good job. You can read the circled letters. I'm so proud of you. While he was still a long way off, what? His father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw a quick survey. How many of you in the room uh, currently are or maybe have just finished up uh, with raising preteens or teenagers? Raise your hands high in the room, nice and high. I know it's hard because you've been using all your energy to raise teenagers. <laughs> How many of you, grandparents, grandparents of teenagers, preteens, got a few of those, yeah? How many of you are getting ready to head in that territory? Any of you? Yeah? Yeah, exactly. So here's my question. I'm curious how many of you have this amazing modern day marvel on your phone? Yeah? It's great, isn't it? Where were you? I dare you. No, I'm just kidding. 
Life 360, it's great for the whole family because everybody can kind of know where everybody else is. You know, for your kids, if they're wondering how long it's going to be before you get there to pick them up, they can see. They can see it in real time. You can see. I know Verizon has this, AT&T, a bunch of places have it. But you know where your loved ones are. And so that was the case for us. This was a few days ago. Uh, Took just a screenshot. My two youngest were at school. Um, my wife, Mama Sita, she was at home uh, teaching. Uh, at this moment, I was here at the church campus. Benjamin was up in Tampa that day. But it's great because you get to really see what's going on. Now, I love that. Uh, not just for like the, don't get me wrong, it's not a snoop factor thing. If you're doing that, you need to have honest conversations with your kids instead of being a snoop. You don't have to amen that. It's just accurate. But it's not a soup factor thing. It's an, it's an information thing. It's back and forth. We all know. But what I love about Life360 is on days like uh, not this week, but the week before, when my two youngest are riding the bus and they're getting off. The stop where they get off is a little over a mile from our actual house. So they get off the bus and then they have to walk about a mile to get to the house. And so on those days where I open at the app and I see, oh, they're close to their bus stop. And I'm like, hey, I've got a second to spare. I can grab them and pick them up. And so they get off the bus and they're like, hey, dad, what are you doing here? And I'm like, you know, I know you guys love walking in this beautiful Florida fall weather. Uh, But I figured you might want to ride to get back. Yeah, please. Sometimes it's Benjamin, you know, he'll come home from working uh, one job in the morning, working one job in the evening, and he'll be on his way, and I'll be looking at the app, and then I'll, I'll open the garage door up for him so he doesn't have to come in through the front door, especially if it's raining or something, he can just bail in, and I'll be waiting there, sometimes with a big goofy grin on my face, as it, and he's like, hey, there's that. Sometimes it's more like Michael Myers, you know, just depends on how I'm feeling that day. Here's the thing, though. That only works if I'm always watching. It doesn't do me any good to have a a tool of sorts if I'm not always watching. While the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. You don't see someone from a long way off unless... You're always watching. Do you catch this in the story that Jesus is telling? He's giving a picture that when this son left home, it's not as though the father just went back around and about his business and just forgot about him. And then one day was like, oh, hey, I recognize that face as he came home. No, no, no. This father indicated by this very fact had built into his rhythms of life from the moment the son left to be on watch for the day he would come home. He was always watching. Like the old Monsters, Inc. movie where Roz says to Wazowski, I'm always watching Wazowski. Always, right? (laughs) From the moment the son left, the father had his eyes locked in. Even in the moments where the son had no thought of the father, the father was thinking of the son. And that's not just a picture of the character and the heart of the father towards the son. It's his character towards us. He's always looking over you. He's always watching. 
even in those moments when your eyes weren't even remotely fixed on him, his eyes were locked on you. That's attentiveness. That's the heart of the father. But listen, it doesn't stop there. It says, while he was still long way off, his father saw him and felt what? He felt compassion for him. So we don't just see the attentiveness. We see the attentiveness played out in the fact that the father was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion for his son. I love this word in the Greek because of what it means, but also because it's a really fun word to say as well. And the Greek word for for compassion here is splachnitsomai. I know you want to say it now too, don't you? Splachnitsomai. Let's say it together. One, two, three. Splachnitsomai. Ooh, look at you, you bunch of Greek scholars. Splachnitsomai. The reason that I really love it though is the root of the word, the very essence of the word means this, from the bowels, from the gut, visceral, instinctive, immediate. See, this wasn't a moment in this parable as Jesus is telling it and as it is recorded for us. This was something that was instinctive on the part of the father. It wasn't him watching from a tower, seeing the sun from a long way off and saying, all right, let me think about what's best to do here. Let me think about how I'm going to handle this. Let me think about what I'm going to say. Let me think about what I'm going to do. No. He was moved with compassion from the gut, visceral. He was responsive. In a modern day sense, it would be the equivalent of that that mother who, who looks and sees her son who's been away at college or for a long time perhaps serving in the military and she wraps her arms around him. It's the response of a father who sees a wild animal and goes and snatches his child up from the dangerous clasp of their jaws or from a car barreling down the road. It is splagnitsomai. It's gut. It's, I was watching for the moment you would come so that I knew already what my response was going to be, was just to go. And that's exactly what we see here. He was moved with compassion. That word compassion is the exact same word that we see. Hear me. Please catch this. Follow the thread. It's the same word that we see in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus looked out on the crowds of those who were beginning to follow him and listen to his teaching. And he was moved with compassion because they were as sheep with no shepherd. It's the same word that moved with compassion that is used in Matthew 14 when Jesus sees their illness and seeks and desires moved with compassion to heal them. It's Matthew chapter 14 or 15 and Mark chapter 8 where Jesus sees the crowds gathered around and they've begun to grow hungry. And so he was moved with compassion. It's Luke chapter 7 when a woman comes and reports of her son who has died and Jesus was moved with compassion and then raised that dead son back to life. It's the same word, compassion, in Matthew 20 when Jesus restored the sight of the blind. You catch it? Spagnitsumai. Visceral. Gut level. Moved with compassion for the sheep without a shepherd. To restore the sight to the blind. To feed the hungry. To raise the dead back to life. To look upon a son 
who was lost and is now found. He was moved with compassion because as Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, his is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. He's moved with compassion and he runs. Down from his watchtower, out into the street, up the road, arms outstretched, dust kicking up, ready to greet his son, he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, understand, we keep needing to come back to this because it's important. Cultural context matters. In Near Eastern culture, the, the very setting in which Jesus was sharing this parable, in Near Eastern culture, the idea of a grown man running anywhere was shameful. Why? Because in order to do so, meant that said man would have to gather up his tunic, gather up his robes, and run, even showing his legs again, which was a shameful thing. Now, to, to translate this for us, it would be the equivalent of after we gather here today, going, hanging out in the courtyard for a bit, and as we're out there chatting and fellowshipping, all of a sudden, we see uh, a father, a man, running down midway in his boxers. Now, I know some of you are like, dude, we live in Port Charlotte. Like, that's... <laughs> see that all the time. No, but please understand, we're not just talking about some random individual who's having a rough day. We're, we're talking about someone who is respected, someone who is well-esteemed, someone who is known, someone who holds leadership, someone who is recognized as a pillar of the community. It would be the equivalent of that person running down midway in their boxers. That was this father running, and a man of such stature would never do such a thing. So to his audience, whether it was sinners or self-righteous, they heard this and went, oh no. That's, mm -mm. we don't do that. that. That seems a bit extreme. But it's not just the cultural lens through which we view this. We also have to understand the religious lens through which we view this. And that is that in this story of Jesus, the wayward son had brought disgrace to his family and his village. And we won't dive into this too deeply today, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit next week as well. But he had brought disgrace to his family and village. So in their minds, hear me, they've already projected out as they hear Jesus telling the story, the son's coming home. They already have in their minds what's about to happen. Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, according to the religious law, the Jewish law, with which these individuals would have been familiar, according to that, when this son comes home, because he has disgraced his family, because he has disgraced his village, the people of the village would then have the right and the responsibility to come and stone him in the street. So then, Jesus is changing the framework of everything they understand, culturally and even in their religion as he presents a father whose measure of running to meet the son 
who comes and embraces him. That word in the Greek, again, it's not a single word, embrace, as we would understand. Some translations, uh, King James, New King James, even say this. It's three Greek words. It's to fall upon the neck. So he runs out and he's, it's not just a hug, a pat in the back. It's not a bro hug, one, two taps, more than that. <laughs> uh, but it's not that, it's a full on covering of the neck. It's wrapping him up. So by saying this, Jesus is ensuring that they hear this story and that for the father to take that measure means that he's ensuring any stone thrown at the son will hit him first. He literally runs to wrap his son in the arms, as Wearsby says, of care and covering. And it serves to emphasize the father's heart for the lost son, but to reveal more than that, God's heart for us. That Christ would run out of the watchtower of heaven and meet us where we were, become as one of us, and then embrace us with the cross so that we can be covered. It's the Father's heart demonstrated in attentiveness. And finally, it's the Father's heart demonstrated in his goodness. Let's step back just a little bit to verse 18. The young man says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, let's look at the rehearsed statement, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me or make me as one of your servants. This is huge. Uh, Dr. John Phillips highlights this, the interesting um, contrast between the, the departing prayer and the returning request of this son that he has planned. The prodigal's parting prayer was, quote, Father, give me the prayer of a heartless young fool. Now his returning request is, Father, make me. And this is amazing in and of itself because there's recognition on the part of the son that to operate as a servant in the father's house is infinitely better than the life he was living before. And we see that and we're like, amen. Yeah, that's good. But understand once more, Jesus is constructing sentences and presenting ideas that rock this audience to their core. You've got to realize when the son says, hey, it's better for me to go serve in my father's house, to be a servant there than to be in the wicked place where I was. Those are the very words of David in Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. David goes on to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to live in the tents of the wicked. As soon as Jesus says this, they're going, he sounds like David. He's shaking him up. He's getting their attention. He's trying to make sure that they get this. So here is this young man embraced by his father. Picture this with me. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Get the sound. Get the smells. 
this young man in the embrace of the father. He is disheveled. He's covered in the filth of rotting food that he's been feeding to pigs. He's caked in dirt and mud. He's home now, broke and broken. And there in the warm, reassuring embrace of the Father, with hot tears streaming down his face, he says, I just don't deserve to be here. Now open your eyes. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but that marvelous conjunction, as I've heard it said, that always heralds a coming change. But the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but did you catch something here? Go back and look at his rehearsed statement. Go look at it. Verse 18, verse 19. Look at the rehearsed statement. Look at verse 22. What happened? The rehearsed statement was, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me, make me as one of your hired servants. He returns home. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he takes a breath to make the request to be a servant. But before he can even get it out of his mouth, that rehearsed, that this perfect response to come home and say, Father, I'm sorry. The father's heart knows the son's heart so well. He says, stop. You don't need to say anymore. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. And right there in that moment, we see the fullness of the goodness of the Father as he presents three gifts. Benjamin, come here. Run up here real quick. Three gifts that he places upon the Son. The first of which we see here, the Father said to his servants, bring quickly the best what? The robe. He says, get the robe. Let's get it on him. And so off a servant goes to grab the robe, returns, hands it to the father. And the father says, here, let's get this on you. No more of that dirt. No more of that filth. Let's get this on you. Looks good on you. I like it. <laughs> Notice something. What does the father say? The father said to his servants, bring quickly what? The what? The best robe. The father in the story from Jesus doesn't say quickly run and get his best robe. He says quickly run and get the best robe. And the best robe in the house would have come from the closet of the father. 
He doesn't just clothe him with a robe. He clothes him with his robe. This is what you wear now. This is who you are now. Now, without diving into this too far this morning, let's not forget the context of the audience. This gesture, this idea of a father placing a robe on the son, this meant something. That robe was a picture of something more than just a piece of clothing. It was more than let's get some clothes on your back. This statement held deep prophetic meaning. You're like, Nate, that's a stretch. Take it up with Isaiah. Because Isaiah says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The robe was a picture in their culture of forgiveness and restoration. A picture of righteousness and salvation. Nate, that's just, no, I'm not seeing it. Fine, take it up with Zechariah. Because Zechariah gives a vision that he had of Joshua standing before the Messiah, the, the Christ. And he says, he spoke to those who stood before him, meaning Jesus, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. Take off the stench of the pigs. Take off the dirt and the filth of what was. Take off the past. See, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. Even as Jesus is telling this cute little story, He's saying things that make them go, is he saying he is who we think he's saying who he is? The robe's a picture of forgiveness and restoration there in Isaiah 61, the same passage we just read. It's in a few verses before that that we read that we've been given a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. This young man had been weighed down pulled down by the weight of the world, pulled down by the weight of his sin and his own mistakes and, and his own poor decisions. And yet he comes home and the father says, I have a gift for you. You're not going to wear that anymore. You're going to wear this. And then we see the next gift, the ring. The father takes and pulls out a ring and he places it on the finger of the son. And he says, this is yours now. The great uh, Bible dictionary writer several years ago, William Smith, wrote this, speaking of the ring of this moment. He made sure that we would be reminded the ring was regarded as an indispensable article of a Hebrew's attire. You know what I'm talking about? All the married men in the room that have one of those on your hand, you know what I'm talking about? And in, I can relate to that. An indispensable piece of the attire. It feels weird, Mark, when I don't have that on. If, if we go home and I cook something on the Blackstone and I make a mess because I always make a mess and I'm cleaning up the spatula and the Blackstone and all that and I've taken that ring off, it, it doesn't matter. I feel naked. I mean like fully clothed, but I feel naked. Because it's not there because it's a part of me. It's part of who I am. That would have been the case for the Hebrews. 
That, that ring was just a part of who they were. But as if that weren't enough, we need to understand that the ring, again, for the audience carries significance. Because as soon as Jesus starts talking about someone who owns a ring giving it to someone else, he's connecting them back to stories that they've heard of their faith, of their forefathers, of the generations before. Stories like Genesis chapter 41, where a young man named Joseph who was stuck in a pit, who was stuck in slavery, was pulled out. And eventually over the course of time, he was raised up to be second in command only to the Second in command only to the king to the extent that the Pharaoh actually took and gave Joseph a ring and said, this is a signet ring. For those of you who don't know, a signet ring literally means the one who wears this, whatever he says, it's as though I spoke. Whatever comes out of his mouth, it's the same as it coming out of my mouth. We see in Esther chapter 8 where a plot has unfolded and been revealed of a man who was setting out to, to exterminate the nation of Israel, Esther's people, to completely annihilate them. They find this out, and then Esther comes to the king and says, would you that I would make a decree to all the people? He says, not only can you make a decree, but here, take my ring and seal that decree with my seal. What you say is as though I've said it. So we have the robe that is forgiveness and righteousness and restoration. And now the ring that is a picture of authority and identity in the Father's house. And finally, kick off that shoe. He comes and he presents to his son on his feet, even though the father doesn't like feet. He places on his foot a sandal. Plain and simple. Let's not dig too far because we don't need to. You see, servants didn't wear shoes in the house of the master. They didn't have. It wasn't something they did. For them to have shoes in the house of the master, it just wasn't a thing. So the father comes and in an act of understanding of the son's heart, even though the son never said, just make me a servant, the father was saying, let me speak to the thing that I know that's in your heart that I didn't give you a chance to say. Shoes didn't go on the feet of those who served in the house. Shoes only went on the feet of those who stayed in the house. Those who dwelt in the presence of the Father. Three gifts. Take them. Have a seat. I want that jacket back. Understood. <laughs> I've said this before, but one of my absolute favorite things is to give a great gift. Anybody else? How many do you, you just love giving a gift? How many of you stink at receiving them? A few of you? I'm, I'm the worst. My mom, every single, this time of year, she'll ask me, what do you want for Christmas? I don't know. She's like, I'm going to kill you. She, it just drives her nuts. 
But I love giving a great gift. Last year, my wife, Mama Sita, she had been looking at this purse. She had had her, I said, oh, I love that purse. It's so cute. I was like, she's a purse gal, you know. And I'm like, well, you ought to get it. No, that's too expensive. I'm not going to get that purse. And so I watched that purse. I went shopping. And y'all know, your pastor's a cheapskate. Ain't no way this man paid full price. But I got it. I tracked that thing down. And then she opened it on Christmas morning. She was like, this, what, really? I love it. I love that reaction. I love giving gifts to my kids, whether it's that, that Christmas Eve set of PJs, any of y'all do that, or whether it's the perfect book on a birthday, or whether it's a vinyl for the record player, because that's a thing now, once again, uh, whatever, or a dog for the whole family, right? God bless that dog. Whatever it is, I, I love being able to give a really good gift. Just like this father, the robe, the ring, the sandals. I love being able to give that great gift. But here's the thing about the giving of that gift. I don't give that because of something they've done. Right? You see, many times in our culture, we adhere to kind of this, you know, Christmas and Santa Claus version of gift, gift giving. Better watch out. Better not pout. Better not cry. I'm telling you why. Good little boys and girls push down their emotions. No, that's not how the song goes. <laughs> if you're good, you'll get something. There was nothing good about this son. It wasn't about the goodness of the son. It was always about the goodness of the Father. And he gave the gift because of who the Son was his. And that is his heart for you today. It is his heart that you would come to a place of understanding you're more than a servant. You're a son. You're a child of his. Yes, you'll serve. Amen? But you're more than. And for some of you here today, some of you joining us online, for the first time ever, that's ringing true in your heart and in your mind. And the Father is inviting you to take one step toward him and watch as he comes running to you. He's inviting you to simply say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. If you will just, but. And he will welcome you in and place a robe of righteousness, a ring of authority and identity, and shoes that say you belong. I want to invite you, if you don't know him today, run to the Father and watch as he runs infinitely faster towards you.